More government spending, unfortunately, means more fraud. Our next guest says it means more money is needed to take on fraud. A case in point, the Health and Human Services Department has more programs than ever. Its inspector general called for a big boost in its 2024 congressional budget justification. For what's behind the ask, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with HHS Principal Deputy Inspector General Julie Hodgkins. So just by way of background, in fiscal 22, HHS had the largest spending of all federal agencies. That's including the Department of Defense at $2.5 trillion. Now, with that, HHS operates over 100 separate programs. So by comparison, in the same fiscal year, that is 22, OIG spent $455 million to oversee those programs. Now, those are pretty big numbers. So uh, to translate that into some dollars that we can all appreciate, OIG has two cents for every $100 of HHS spending to oversee programs and to prevent, detect, and deter fraud, waste, and abuse in those programs. Putting it another way, HHS has 0.021% of what is spent by HHS for oversight. I also kind of want to put this in context for you amongst the IG community. So by comparison to our OIG colleagues, HHS OIG is amongst the lowest funded by percentage of the, you know, looking at the overall agency expenditure to the IG budget. But with this small amount of money, we are quite mighty in what we do. So OIG recoveries and expected recoveries, comparing those to the money that we are given every year, for every dollar that we get, we return $11 to the federal government. So I guess what I want to leave you with at the beginning here is we are a good investment to to protect federal programs. So in the president's fiscal 24 budget, HHS is seeking a total increase of $82.3 million dollars. $52.5 million of that is for Medicaid and Medicare oversight, and $29.8 million of that is for our oversight of HHS public health and human services programs, with the $52.5 million for Medicare and Medicaid oversight. That increase is largely through a request for a legislative change that would increase the amounts available to DOJ to HHS and to HHS OIG from the healthcare fraud and abuse control account. So over 10 years, the proposal would actually increase by 20% the amounts available to each or to all of these enforcement partners for fraud fighting. So if you are able to get those funds, what is the strategy for where would that money go necessarily? Would it just be to manpower or just in other areas that cost money to investigate? (laughs) Sure. So I it's going to be in a variety of areas, Eric. So certainly we need more agents, investigators to be able to go and look at those referrals that we are getting. But in addition to that, we also, of course, need the support that goes around that, right? We make use of data to identify trends and outliers that point us to potential fraud and certainly to waste and abuse in programs. And so to say that, uh, you know, it's all going to manpower is not exactly right, right? We need those data tools, that infrastructure to be able to use the data uh, that we get from Medicare and from Medicaid to be able to identify, you know, the trends and the places that we should go 
spend our, you know, spend our money on investigations. Gotcha. And so you mentioned all the amount of criminal referrals you get. And I don't know if you know th- this is a proper question for you or if, or if you would even know. But where does that stack up with other IG offices? Because uh, I'm just curious about the kind of referrals that you all get tend to be. Well, f- first off, you mentioned that HHS has so many programs that that means more people involved with those programs, which means more potentially criminal referrals. Is that the reason why you get such a large amount? Or is it just because of the the amount of money being spent, uh, you know, is exactly what fraudsters are looking for? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And and I'll tell you that I don't necessarily have statistics on all of the other OIGs. But what I can tell you about um, is is HHS and, and, you know, sort of why I think that we get that number of referrals. Mm -hmm. Number one, we are looking at externally based programs, right? Programs that serve almost every family uh, in the in the United States, right? Uh, we are providing um, healthcare services to the aged population, to the most vulnerable populations. Um, and so, you know, one adage of, of oversight and enforcement is follow the money. Where the money goes, that's where the fraudsters go. And so I think that the fact that we're talking about the vast amounts of money that are being spent in Medicare and Medicaid, um, you know, that is what drives those uh, that that number of referrals. Okay, and so when it comes to enforcement, let's I want to focus a little bit on the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services right now, just because that is, I imagine, one of the larger portions of where you see the most referrals to. Can you tell me about the actuary projections and, you know, how that helps guide the OIG work, but also um, the trends that you're seeing there when it comes to investigations? So. You know, the actuary projections certainly give us insights into the solvency of the program. And that is that is a primary concern. Right. But I think that there are really a lot of different factors that go, you know, really guide where we go with our work. And it's all about assessing risk. Right. And we talked a little bit about follow the money. So let's just talk a little bit about the money that's spent in these programs. Right. In 2021, HHS spent $521.8 billion in Medicaid dollars and $857.1 billion in Medicare dollars. Now, keeping in mind that more than 50% of those services are now provided through managed care, that's the place where we want to go look, right? Because that's where those big dollars are being spent. And if I'm being candid, I have to tell you, there's a layer between the federal government and those services that are being provided in managed care. And that's namely those insurance companies that are providing that, providing those policies of insurance and, and standing between us and the providers. That makes it harder for us to oversee those programs, but that doesn't mean that we can't find a way. So let me give you an example. We've taken a look at the ways that these managed care plans can game the system using risk adjustment payments. Risk adjustment is a situation where plans can seek increased compensation for treating older, sicker beneficiaries. That increased payment is intended to discourage the plans from giving preferential enrollment to healthier individuals. And if it's applied correctly, it actually preserves and expands access to medically necessary health care. However, what our work has shown is that those financial incentives actually create risk 
by allowing the risk adjustment payment to drive upcoding of the severity of patient diagnoses. So we've seen an increase in the diagnosis. This patient is sicker, therefore we should get more work without proper documentation that there is in fact a need for a higher diagnosis and treatment that follows that. All right. And and so in knowing that information, is that going to be part of the increase in funds that you're asking for? You can further investigate those Medicare claims that, you know, something looks a little off here? Absolutely. And in doing that, you know, we're going to sort of take a two-pronged approach. Number one, we're going to work those referrals that we get. And number two, we're going to use the data to to identify those outliers and trends that point us to the providers, point us to the plans where we need to be, you know, focusing our resources. I didn't mention this earlier, and and I do want to to mention uh, this as well in terms of, you know, how do we focus our work on on Medicare and Medicaid? We, you know, we take a whole of OIG approach to, you know, deciding what kind of work we should do. Executives from each of our disciplines meet every week to discuss potential work products. So many of those, of course, are looking at CMS programs, but those executives assess the potential work and they make resource allocation decisions, which help us bring the most value and uh, will best improve HHS programs. So we're really taking, you know, not just an investigative lens, but a whole of OIG, audit evaluation lens to how do we improve these programs. And that's important because, look, things like program changes and legislative changes, they also drive what we should be looking at. As an example, like the Inflation Reduction Act actually makes some pretty significant changes to the way that prescription drugs are going to be paid for by Medicare and what the cost-sharing Medicare enrollees will expect to pay for those drugs. So when we get legislative changes like that, we've got to take a look at those. I, you know, we these are big policy changes, and you know, sometimes we often need to engage our audit and evaluation staff to to take a look at how best how best to implement those programs and how best to oversee those programs. Understood. And so, getting away from CMS, what are some of the other areas that you may not have mentioned yet that you are all trying to get a bigger hold of what is going on? At- actually in, um, I imagine, veterans benefits may be another place where you're seeing some overlap. And also Medicaid uh, is probably a big part of this with more states looking to accept more Medicaid dollars, actually. Yes, of course, Medicaid is very, very important. But I think to answer your question, I'm going to focus a little bit on the public health and human services side of HHS. The thing I think that beyond the Medicare and Medicaid programs, what we really need to focus on, grants and contracts. Mm-hmm. HHS is the largest grant-making entity in the federal government, and it oscillates between being the third or the fourth largest contracting entity in the federal government. So a tremendous amount of money is being distributed by HHS. In 2022, that's $740 billion in grants. That, of course, includes the Medicaid grants. And billion in contracts. As we've talked about a couple of times already, you know, follow the money. The fraudsters certainly do. And so this is an area we think that is ripe for some expansion of our work. We have work in this area. In fact, we recently released a report looking at the National Institutes of Health and how they monitor and manage their grants. The report findings were consistent with our prior work. NIH struggles to effectively monitor grant awards and particularly struggles when there are foreign entities involved. So 
That report was looking at grant award that NIH made to EcoHealth Alliance, um, and then a sub-award was made to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. You know, we certainly found some inappropriate expenditures, but I think the most important thing that we found here is that NIH did not effectively monitor the grant award. There were requirements for annual progress reports as a part of the grant, but EcoHealth was late with their year four progress report, and NIH failed to follow up on that for almost two years. That's important because NIH didn't, uh, did when it did receive that report, it contained information that NIH believed would reveal circumstances that could have required the grant to be reviewed by a special HHS committee that was focused on potential pandemic pathogens. We have to get the basics right, right? Know who we're doing business with, issue the grants, and follow up. Similar on the contract side. And, you know, the other thing we're excited about in this area is that we believe that those advanced data analytics tools that we've been applying to Medicare and Medicaid oversight can actually enhance our review of grants and contracts as well. They can lead us to see the better see the risks, um, understand the trends and outliers on HHS contracts, and ultimately lead us to recover misspent funds and remove bad actors from the government grant and contract programs through suspension and debarment. So that would be my number one area, I think, you know, outside of Medicare and Medicaid that I, that we would like to be focused on. Yeah, when you're talking about this much data that needs analysis, are you going to be looking for any outside help, maybe contracting out to um, any vendors to help with that data analysis just because you're dealing with so many dollars and cents? Well, Eric, I, I think this is one of those situations where foresight and planning have have really brought us to a great place. HHS OIG has one of the best data shops in the IG community. We had the uh, first chief data officer in the IG community, and we just have a tremendous staff of people that are not only building the infrastructure for us to be able to do this work, but conducting the analysis, working hand in hand with our auditors and with our investigators to identify trends to make referrals for, you know, additional uh, analysis by those groups. So I think we're in great shape. That's not to say that we don't need more talent. We do. But uh, I think that we're going to focus a lot of our efforts with that staff and the contractors that they have. You know, we do certainly um, rely on some contract support there. But yeah, I think we're in good shape. And also just lurking above this whole conversation was just the effect that the pandemic and COVID-19 pandemic had on, you know, NIH, HHS, all those agencies that were pretty much on the front line. Um, what can you tell me about what you saw? Are there any other major trends that you saw that were, you know, direct effects of what was going on in the world? Well, certainly there were a lot of effects and, you know, it is, I think, one of the great challenges that HHS uh, faces. If you go take a look, I'll invite you and your uh, listeners to go take a look at our top management challenges. One of the ones that we have up front is the response to emergencies. And of course, a pandemic falls into that into that rubric. Tremendous amounts of money came into the department and went out through things like the Provider Relief Fund. Again, as we've talked about, where where we have big uh, dollars flowing, there are opportunities for fraud. And so, you know, we've we've been trying to work with the department, you know, as they were setting up those programs to talk through things like how do we establish program integrity up front? Um, you know, again, that concept, know who you're doing business with. In any event, yes, I think there are just, uh, you know, tremendous impacts 
uh, within the department. It certainly was a, a tremendous influx of resources and shift of resources in order to be able to respond to this pandemic. Mm-hmm. That certainly has impact. We have, I think, my numbers may be a little dated here, but I think we have 100 products either ongoing or finished at this point looking at COVID-19. We have a COVID-19 landing page on our website. I invite you to go take a look at that to see more about what we've been doing overseeing HHS's response to the pandemic and how they can take lessons learned and, and move those forward for the future. And finishing up here, once again, not to compare you to other IG offices, but I'm just curious about HHS OIG's you know, footprint. I know that you have regional offices all over the country, but uh, you, know, <laughs> you mentioned how HHS is giving out more grants than anyone else in the federal government. Uh, you know, when you look at DOD has a whole headquarters for themselves in Virginia, you know, what does your office footprint look like um, as far as you know, even just office space and headquarters? Sure. Well, we certainly have our headquarters located here in Washington, D.C. and Baltimore, because, of course, uh, CMS uh, has their headquarters in Baltimore. Uh, We have nine regional offices throughout the United States um, and then field offices within those divisions, because to your point, we have to cover a lot of ground and we need folks to be on the ground, particularly um, our investigators and our auditors to be able to to go out and interview people, talk to them about what their experiences are, better understand the referrals that we get, better develop the facts for cases and for audits that we need. And so, yes, we do have a pretty large footprint across the nation. We are um, happy to be able to, to be close to the work and to be able to lay eyes on and put hands on the situations that we're investigating and auditing. And I hope I'm not bringing up a massive topic right at the end here, but, you know, you mentioned you have to cover a lot of areas. Covering rural areas and getting health care out to those areas is hard enough. I'm just curious about some of the challenges of finding fraud in some of those hard to reach places in the country. Well, you know, we have we are so fortunate to have a great staff and personnel. And I'm just I'm thinking through our staff that's out in the Midwest and West that are looking at Indian Health Service facilities and the, you know, the health care that is being provided to our American Indian and Alaska Native communities. And those folks are just truly experts. They've been on the job for a long time. They have developed a deep expertise in that area. They know the people. They know our law enforcement partners. And we are just so fortunate to be able to leverage that kind of expertise and that kind of commitment, you know, to be able to to identify fraud, waste and abuse in those programs, help the department make them better and just deliver better services to the entire American public. Julie Hodgkins, Principal Deputy Inspector General at the Department of Health and Human Services, speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. There's more to the interview. Find it in its entirety at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, President of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. 
Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of looking like magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in looking like magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, What I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about 
positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for 
young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. Well, Doctor <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.